Election College, episode number 303, Alvin Barkley, part two. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Hey, Jason, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Where are you at this week? You're always somewhere different. I am still in Texas for a couple right. more weeks. Where are you going after that? We're actually going to North Carolina via Mississippi. Man, I never know. It's like a mystery. It's like, where's Jason? But like, where's Waldo? And also a combination of where in the world is Carmen San Diego, but with Jason instead. Yeah. And I'm not wearing a weird outfit. Well, that depends on who's judging that. That's true. I probably look kind of like, you know, you ain't from around here to some people. True. Because I don't have boots or a cowboy hat. Yet. I do have the truck. <laughs> That's true. You fit right in with the truck. The truck makes mm. me totally Texas. You know, I was just thinking the the good part about having a truck, but also uh, RVing full time, is that no one can ever ask you if, they, if you can help them move with because you have a truck. Because... You're not near anybody long enough for them to move. True that, yeah. And there's a big old hitch in the... Well, okay. In the bed, which yeah. actually you can take it out, but it would be a big pain, so... Yeah. Hey, so we're talking about Alvin Barkley, and I mentioned last week that this is the first episode, or the first two-parter, and maybe more, um, we'll, we'll see, of a vice president that we've ever done. And here's the really weird thing, Jason, to date this this year... This episode is the second highest amount of downloads we've had for an episode after one week this year. Really? I looked earlier today. Either a lot of people are finding out about us anew, which there's already a lot of you out there, so it's entirely possible. Hi. Or people are actually interested in Alvin Barkley uh, more than they are like other presidents or presidents in general. So Maybe they think we're talking about Charles Barkley or the dog from Sesame Street. I, Yeah, that's probably it. That's... You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so in the last episode, we talked about how um, Alvin Barkley is running for Senate, and Woodrow Wilson comes up. He's, he's nominated for the presidency, and he is a little bit more progressive. And before that, people didn't like Alvin Barkley very much, at least in the DNC, because he was too progressive. And then here comes Woodrow Wilson. Pretty progressive guy. And all of a sudden, Alvin Barkley looks a lot better for the Senate than he used to. He crushes his opponents, wins 48% of the votes, and goes on and wins the general election. Yeah, and he hits the ground running. On April the 24th of 1913, he speaks on the House floor, and he says, You know what, Wilson? You got it together. I'm going to speak in favor of the Underwood Simmons Tariff Act which lowers tariffs on foreign goods. And he endorses the new freedom agenda of Wilson's. And, you know, there's a good relationship going on there. Hey, Wilson. Hey, Barkley, let's be friends. And th that's kind of 
that's the story. <laughs> Quick summary. <laughs> <laughs> so during this time, Barkley is a speaker for the Anti-Saloon League. And this is pretty much, I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like. No more alcohol, no more saloons, that kind of stuff. Remember, he is from a pretty conservative religious background, so that kind of bleeds over into his politics as well, as it usually does. And he co-sponsors the Shepard Barkley Act, which, you know, it's named partially for him. And it bans alcohol sales entirely in Washington, D.C. And this is in 1917. Uh, So... That really helps kind of put him on the map as far as that movement goes. He also uh, forbids grain being used, which is, by the way, as someone who is uh, pretty familiar with the processes needed to make beer, forbidding grain from making beer is kind of insane. It's it's almost impossible. Uh, So he basically says, okay, you can't use grain to make alcoholic beverages, one, because we don't want booze, and two, because World War I coupled with some bad weather and a bad harvest, really makes grain kind of scarce. Um, now, the amendment passes the House, but basically a committee says, okay, we're going to amend this, and yeah, we'll let you do some of the provisions you want, but you could still make beer and wine with grain. That's just kind of kind of craziness. And uh, he goes on to really kind of be on the national stage when it comes to the 18th Amendment, which is kind of... I don't know. It's it's a big mo- like we see the prohibition as like oh there's this period of time. It was a huge deal at the time. It was insanely huge. Yeah, and it divided the parties, um, both Republicans and Democrats. D- Democrats in particular were divided over the issue, and through a series of unfortunate for some events, Barkley kind of slid through. <laughs> he got his way. To make a short story long, Barkley avoids a lot of the controversy by not saying too much about his views with prohibition. Some people die, some people live, and prohibition eventually goes into effect, and Barclay isn't pegged as being responsible for the passage of the 18th Amendment. Yeah, so moving on, we're not going to spend a whole ton of time on his time in the Senate, but just to kind of give you some ideas, he was pretty much in favor of neutrality for the United States when it came to World War I. And he does a lot of different things that are not terribly profitable. For one, he was very in favor of Woodrow Wilson's ideas to purchase all these merchant ships um, for the United States because all these uh, foreign carriers were traveling through different waters that the German U-boats were in. And he knew that if we get too much of our goods from these merchants, then they're probably going to get struck but down by U-boats eventually, and they're going to use that against us in the war and everything else. So that was one of his things. Um, he basically was in favor of conscription, and, uh, well, that's the draft, in case you didn't know, and finding any way that you could to raise revenue for the war once it gets declared and everything goes on. Um, he, at one point, he even thought at 40 years old, maybe he should resign uh, his seat as a as a senator to go and enlist in the army. But Woodrow Wilson was like, no, nah, man, I need you here in D.C. We're doing good things. So he ended up not doing that. But that'd be pretty crazy, um, a, a 40-year-old senator resigning his seat <laughs> just to go fight in the war, which is crazy. Yeah. 
different time completely. Crazy as in unheard of, not crazy as in a bad idea. Right. Between August and October of 1918, he joins a congressional delegation, really not an official delegation, but he and a bunch of other people from Congress get together. They go to Europe and they survey the situation there. They meet with uh, different European leaders. And it was during this time that he goes public with his views, like Wilson, of wanting to ratify the Treaty of Versailles and participate in the League of Nations. Of course, both those measures failed, but we know where he stands. And after, by the time 1920 rolls around, Barclay is supporting one of our favorite names, William Gibbs McAdoo, for the Democratic National uh, Convention nominee. But the nomination ends up going to the Buckeye, James M. Cox, and he ends up campaigning for Cox as well as his running mate, FDR. And like any good politician, his speeches focus more on Wilson's progressive views rather than Cox's fitness for office. Well, Harding, you remember him, Warren G. Harding, jumps all over that. He pretty much aligns himself with Harding. Barkley and Harding are on the same side of the issue against Cox. And yeah, the Democrats are not in a good situation right now because they couldn't get their party unified. Uh, what ends up happening, though, is Barkley is the ranking Democrat on the Interstate and Foreign Commerce Committee. And he ends up winning over some Republicans because of him being a little less like a Democrat on certain issues. And he runs for the governor of Kentucky, and he takes the platform of Christianity, morality, and good government. And because of this, he doesn't end up winning the Democratic Party nomination. So go back to Washington, Barkley. Yeah. I think a minute ago, Jason, I said that Barkley was um, a senator that would leave uh, to go to the war. I think he was actually in the House at that time. And then he later, I was thinking ahead, he later goes on to run for the Senate. And he had helped create the Railway Labor Act and stuff like that. So people were really interested in him. And especially since he had run for the gubernatorial seat um, and, again, earned the trust and stuff of the Republicans on the opposite side of the aisle, he really has a lot of support. And he has very little opposition in the primary. And uh, he gets on through the primary with almost no problem. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because here you've got this progressive. And a lot of times when you think progressive in today's political climate, you're thinking one party as opposed to the other. But you would cross party lines a lot more than nowadays. You know, Republicans were endeared to him a bit. And um, certain Democrats were endeared toward him. But what ends up happening is during the Hoover administration, Barkley is all over him because he says that, well, 
Hoover's response to the Depression and the drought of 1930 were inadequate and that the $45 million in loans to farmers that he approved amounted to less than half of the losses sustained by Kentucky's farmers alone. So he's like, hey, Hoover isn't doing enough for America. And Barkley goes on to support Franklin Delano Roosevelt for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1932. He ends up delivering the keynote address at the DNC, and it looks like this is going to help his senatorial run. It's going to help him rise to even more national prominence because, you know, when you speak at the DNC, something's going to happen. And that's exactly what happens later on. Jason, you talked about how the parties were a little more nuanced and there was less like us versus them mentality. And that may be true, but it's, I know a person who is in the, um, how do I say this in Congress on the national level? And I know them better than not well, but not well. And talked have talked to them on numerous occasions over a beer or two. And this is somebody who's on the national political scale, and and he has basically said that it's amazing how many of our people in Congress are actually pretty moderate, uh, no matter what side of the aisle, but pretty moderate. But the unsaid truth there is that if you'll be basically be eaten alive if you show any bit of and and by either party, by your own party, by the opposite party, if you show any bit of non-allegiance to the mm. <laughs> um, ingrained ideas of that party and you know you lose your base you lose elections etc it's just kind of disappointing that we can't see more nuance to things i mean yeah there are some things that are black and white and certainly that depends on your position but most things have a little bit of wiggle room to them i think you sound like a politician <laughs> i know i know <laughs> So anyway, in 1938, Barkley is uh, headed into the primary again for his re-election to the Senate, and he gets a challenger, A.B. Happy Chandler, uh, who was the governor in Kentucky, and he's a pretty popular guy, comes up and is going to challenge him, and he is confident that he is going to win. Matter of fact, he's confident he's going to be the president, and he really wants to use the Senate as kind of a stepping stone, I guess you could say. And um, he really has tried to pull some strings in the past. He's tried to play with uh, Roosevelt's picks for the federal judgeships and stuff like that. Um, but early on in the in this contest, in the primary contest, uh, basically, Barkley is only able to campaign on the weekends. So he gets a bunch of people to help him out to go out and speak on his behalf. Now, mind you, this is a lot different than when he was running for Senate because when he was running for Senate, they nicknamed him like Iron Man um, before the, the superhero even existed. But they nicknamed him Iron Man because he would go out and was known to make like 16 speeches in a day, which I'm not really sure how that's possible. Well, it turns out that a lot of the labor leaders who were previously... Uh, in favor of Barkley had come out and backed Chandler's gubernatorial bid, but they said, we're not going to back Chandler this time. We're going to back Barkley. And Barkley says, okay, 
after this congressional uh, term is up, I'm going out and I'm going to make between eight and 15 speeches a day, traveling 4,500 miles a week, which by the way, yeah, there are some planes and stuff, but it's still mostly going to be on the road, going to be on the road, on the trains, etc. So this is just really um, interesting, <laughs> first of all, from someone who has gone door to door and stuff like that. This is insane. Yeah. And um, Chandler, who was challenging him, uh, says, you know, Barkley's too old. He can't get out and do what he used to do and stuff like that. And Barkley's like, hey, watch me. <laughs> and so um, the uh, the the claims were kind of even more retorted whenever uh, Chandler gets sick later that year and his campaign is kind of put on hold. So Barkley is looking pretty good at this point. Yeah, I wonder, Ben, you know, Happy Chandler, he was commissioner of baseball at yeah. one point and mm-hmm. he only passed away, what, in the last, well maybe 20 years now. <laughs> it hasn't been that long. Yeah. But what would have happened if the Democrats were more united back then? Who knows what could have yeah. happened? But it's interesting to see that, wow, Kentucky was pretty important in that primary and in that general election. And I think this is hilarious because when people think about how dirty politics is now, you go back to this era and Chandler as the governor, he had materials printed for his campaign with state funds uh-huh. and totally solicited campaign funds from state employees and promised new jobs in exchange for votes. That was totally legit. Like every Kentucky governor up until that point, at least in the several decades up to that point right. was like, Hey, this is okay. You should do it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that's what they did. But, uh, Barkley really was a man of a strong loyalty, uh, to Roosevelt. But when it came to the later years, he had a bit of a split with Roosevelt Uh, The big tension develops between Barclay and Roosevelt during uh, World War II uh, later on. In 1943, Roosevelt says, nope, I'm not going to appoint Barclay to a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And uh, Barclay's like, oh, yeah? Well, guess what? I'm going to criticize your war production board uh, because it's awarding contracts Uh, for war-related materials to large companies rather than small businesses. Uh, That's a sham. You shouldn't do that. And the two really refused to get along (laughs) from that point over. uh, There's this rift in and among the Democrats at this point. And we kind of know how that fares, um, especially with the ascent of Harry S. Truman onto the scene. Jason, something that most people have probably heard of but aren't necessarily sure what it is, is the Hatch Act. And you talked about uh, how Chandler went and used state funds and campaign funds from state employees and everything else, uh, was openly promising government jobs, you know. This was kind of uncovered um, during that time, and the guy who uncovered it, Thomas Lunsford Stokes, Lunsford Stokes, 
actually won a Pulitzer Prize for this investigation and everything. But this is where the Hatch Act comes from, which basically at the time, this is the Hatch Act of 1939. It's been changed a little bit since then. Um, restricts federal employees from participating in political activities. And uh, now it's it's a little bit more broad that if you're if your salary comes from federal funds. So let's say you're a municipal employee, but your program that you're working on is actually funded by federal funds that you still can't participate in political activities. So this uh, Chandler and and his uh, malfeasance really have a bigger ripple in our current day than you would think just by the fact that he was kind of a a goofy guy who did a lot of bad things and lost. Um, it, it has long-term implications for sure. Interesting. So FDR passes away and Truman becomes the president, which is kind of a shock to everyone, even though it shouldn't have been a shock. But there, Harry is in as president and there is no vice president serving. During Truman's first term, a lot is going on in Barclay's life. His wife becomes an invalid. She has heart disease and he closes his law practice when he is elected to the Senate to pay for his wife's care. And he goes out on the speaking circuit to earn money. And he's getting noticed as one of the hardest working senators out there. And Barclay, being from the South, really was that old-time Democrat. Uh, He would go out, speak, energize the audience, and this ran very contrary to Harry Truman because Harry Truman was, dare we say, more of a modern Democrat in that he supported civil rights legislation and a lot of his policies differed from that of Barclays, but it looked like that would be a very dynamic duo uh, to run in 1948. And that's exactly what happens. Barkley is selected to be Harry Truman's running mate. And you remember what happens in 1948, right? Everyone is surprised because Harry Truman beats Dewey for the presidency. And Truman and Barkley, they are very different men. But Truman invites Barkley in uh, to the cabinet meetings, unlike FDR (laughs) and the way he treated Truman. Truman treats him pretty well. So we didn't really talk too much about anything outside of politics for Barkley. And in July 8th of 1949, uh, he meets Jane Rucker Hadley. And she's a widow from St. Louis who is about half his age. And... They meet at the party. They keep in touch after she goes back to St. Louis. And, uh, you know, they have letters and they go back and forth and see each other. This is while he's vice president, by the way. So it's going to receive quite a bit of attention. You know, it wouldn't be quite as bad as today with the tabloids and TMZ and stuff like that. But it still gets quite a bit of attention from the newspapers and just people in general. Uh, Very interested in, you know, famous relationships. In November of 18 I'm sorry 1949 they get married in the Singleton Memorial Chapel of St. John's Methodist Church in St. Louis and this makes Barkley the only vice president ever to get married while in office 
and he's not exactly a young man. I mean, he's not ancient or anything, but most people, uh, the reason you don't have many people getting married in office, you know, you got a couple presidents um, who did, but the reason is because most of them are older on in age when they go into office. Barkley says, nope, I'm going to break the norm. I'm getting married. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> He's the regular Iron Man, though. Uh, so, yeah, he gets married, and he runs for president at the age of 74 years old. He's got failing eyesight, has heart problems, and in the 1952 DNC, he briskly walks seven blocks from the bus station to his campaign headquarters, and, you know still has breath to speak to the people he needs to speak to to try to secure the the nomination and uh Barkley does not get the nomination uh Adelaide Stevenson does but he's still out there he's out there on the speaker circuit and in 1956 he's delivering a keynote address at the Washington and Lee mock convention he speaks of his willingness to sit with other freshman senators because he did get elected to the Senate again. So this man had been in the House. He serves as the junior senator. He serves as the senior senator, goes on, becomes the vice president, and then goes back to being the junior senator. He's giving this speech. He's talking about how he would be glad to sit on the black. He would be glad to sit on the back row for he would, quote, rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than to sit in the seats of the mighty, which is a paraphrase from Psalm 84. He garners this huge round of applause, and then he collapses on stage and dies. What a way to go. Wow. Yeah, people really liked to clap for Barkley at one point. Uh, at a different speech when he was um, giving his farewell address after he withdrew from the, the president's president race or the, the primary. Uh, he goes and he's given a farewell address and he gets a 35 minute ovation when he gets up to speak. And when he's done, they stand up and give him a 45 minute one. So he's not oh, used to people clapping for him. But yeah, I guess it's when it's your time to go. It's your time to go whether or not you're on stage or not. Yeah. It's kind of haunting to listen to because you can uh, you can listen to the audio of the speech and there he is he's just going and then applause and then all of a sudden the applause just stops and you're like what happened well he died yeah he died quoting scripture probably a little bit out of context and um, what a way to go yeah for sure. So Alvin Barkley, again, somebody that is not discussed much in your history classes in high school. And I took history courses in college and never heard much about Alvin Barkley. So it's fun to learn about these people we don't know much about and even more fun for Jason and I, at least, to tell you about them. Um, we can learn a lot from doing this podcast. We hope you learn at least a little bit. And we also hope you enjoy it enough that you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Tell your buddies, your mom, anybody who listens to podcasts. Here's the thing. If you listen to podcasts and like nobody else in your house does, but you and your wife and your kids or whatever, y'all got, 
y'all got iPhones, just grab their iPhones and just go on in the, in the iTunes, review us. They, they won't mind, I promise. Yeah, for crying out loud. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>